Yes, we're recording. Here we are. Good afternoon. Very good to see you. Let me extend my welcome as well to that of Nathan's, particularly if you're new here. And it's nice to see a few new faces here with us. You've joined us on quite an unusual Sunday. Normally, our minister, Andy, would preach. Uh, but from time to time, we would like to give him just a little bit of chance to take a breather, or in this case, to fulfill other responsibilities that he has teaching elsewhere. Normally, what we do is we go through one book of the Bible sequentially, and we explain that passage chapter by chapter. And today's a little bit different. We're going to dive straight into this wonderful passage from Colossians. And as such, I'm going to explain a little bit of the context as we go along. Let's begin, though, shall we, as always, with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at this wonderful passage. Please help me to explain it clearly and helpfully. Father, help us to listen to your voice, that we might know Jesus better and make him known here in Earlsfield. Amen. As I say, my name's Ali Gordon. If you don't know me, I'm on the leadership team of the the church uh, here. And it's, it's great to be able to preach actually this afternoon. I want to begin with a very simple question. How big is your Jesus? How big is your Jesus? That might sound like an odd question, especially if you've been a Christian for quite some time. But it's a question right at the heart of this passage. And the way in which you answer that question will define the way that you understand Christianity. It will define the way that you understand yourself and even the way that you understand the whole universe. I asked a few friends of mine this last week what they thought of when they heard the name Jesus. And these were some of the things that they said. Some are Christian, some are not. A good teacher, a religious leader, the son of God, my personal saviour, a historical figure. Perhaps one of these words resonates with yourself. Well, as a historical figure, there have been more books written about Jesus than there have of anyone else in the history of this planet. Yet he never wrote a book himself. He was born into a poor family, born out of wedlock, trained as a carpenter, and lived in a pretty inconsequential small town in what's now known as the North District of Israel. Yet his name is known all throughout the world. He has at least 85 Twitter accounts, and he has something like 900 pages on Facebook dedicated to him. He has become quite arguably the most famous man who ever lived. But none of this comes even close to the scale and the magnitude of the real Jesus. The Jesus that Paul writes about in this passage. The picture that Paul gives us here is a Jesus of the entire universe. A cosmic Jesus, if you will. A transcendent Jesus for all time, for every place for every worldview, and Lord of everything. Well, just before we get into the detail of the passage, let me give just a little bit of background to the book before we read on. Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul, who is a very scholarly and educated man. And here Paul is writing a letter to the church in Colossae. 
a church that had been subject to some pretty dodgy teaching that was beginning to undermine the good news of the gospel. So some religious teachers had begun to teach pretty strict rules about what the Christians could eat and shouldn't eat, uh, about what they're allowed to taste and even touch. I suppose, in a way, their teaching would be a little bit like today saying, okay, you're a Christian, but in order to be a proper Christian, you need to go through these types of rites of passage, or you need to read these particular books, or you need to have this particular experience of God in order to be a proper Christian. And Paul says, no, you don't need extra rules, you don't need rituals, you don't need extra ceremonies. If you are a Christian, you have Christ. And Christ is sufficient. You don't need to add anything onto the gospel. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who you need. So that's a little bit of context. Let's dive straight into the passage now and see what Paul has to tell us about the cosmic nature of our personal Jesus. So the first point is the supremacy of Christ. And Paul begins in verse 15, and please read with me. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Right at the start, the language sounds like that of the creation story, doesn't it? Back in Genesis, Adam and Eve are made in the image of God. And it's an image that became broken and tainted by their rebellion against God. But Jesus is not a broken or tainted image. He is the perfect image of God. When we look at Jesus, we see a perfect picture of God. Those of you who know me know that I work in the creative arts. I work as an artist. And for me, this concept is really quite fascinating. Often when we think about Jesus in the Bible, we think quite rightly about Jesus as the Word, right? Uh, As the Logos, as it appears to us in John chapter 1, the Word of God. But here, Jesus isn't just the Word of God. He is the image of God, uh, the icon, as it has it in the Greek He's not just a word, but a picture. A picture that points us towards the character of God, who is invisible. And it's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? He is the image of the invisible God. It captures Jesus in both his humanity and in his divinity at the same time. Paul then says he is the firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn over all creation. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's not what the Jehovah's Witnesses think that it means. If you've ever been hijacked by a Jehovah's Witness, they might bring you back to these verses. And sometimes you see Jehovah's Witnesses even around an oilsfield down at the station handing out magazines. They would tell you that these verses speak about Jesus as the first person to be born in the creation. So it's a bit like God is a kind of a hermit, if you like, and he comes out of his cave one day and he decides to make creation, and the first thing that he makes is Jesus. The first thing born in creation is Jesus. Well, of course, if you've read the Bible at length, you'll know that that just is not consistent with what we read about Christ elsewhere in the Bible. In fact, the whole weight of the New Testament completely pulls in absolutely the opposite direction. 
And even these verses immediately surrounding this verse point in a different direction as well. Paul tells us that God poured out all his fullness into Jesus. That Jesus wasn't created or born in the sense that you and I and every other living creature is created or born. No. He was the creator himself. Not created, not a creature, but the creator, capital C. You see, to a first century Jew, to the first century Jewish culture, that phrase firstborn, the firstborn son, was the son who in every household would receive the double portion as part of his inheritance. He was the most important heir within the family and would be the greatest among all the siblings. Now, we don't really have a similar system within our own culture. Uh, I mean, parents today tend to split the inheritance 50-50. You know, Anna and I, at the moment, have one daughter, Lily. But if we have a second child, I suppose we'll split everything 50-50. And I suppose Lily gets the, the shoe collection from Anna's side, and uh, the other sibling gets my fantastic arrangement of science fiction novels. It, it, it kind of goes 50-50 that way. But very different in Jewish culture here. To a Jew in Colossae, when they read Jesus as the firstborn over all creation, they would have interpreted that to say that Jesus inherits the double portion of his father's land. That's to say he is the most important heir. You might think of that scenario where a king takes his son up to the height of the kingdom and he stretches out his arms and he says, one day, my son, all this will become yours. Okay, this is as if God the Father climbs to the height of creation and he stretches out his hand and he says, one day, Christ, all this becomes yours. So firstborn is a statement about Jesus' status, about what is owed to him, what belongs to him. He is the firstborn over all creation, above everything, and everyone else. All things come to him. And there's a reason for that. Why does everything come to Jesus? Well, verse 16. All things were created by him and for him. Whether things in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Now, it's worth taking a moment just to pause and reflect on what that means. Big words. Paul, again, uses the language of creation. But here, he's making a statement that at the time, just as it much is today, is one of the most radical claims of Christianity. The claim that it's Jesus who is the intelligent designer behind all things in the universe. Earlier this week, I asked James, who's one of our several scientists in residence, what we believe to be the very smallest particle that exists within the universe today. I find all this stuff kind of infinitely fascinating. And he tells me that the smallest particle is this thing called a quark. All right? Thing called a quark, speculatively, even at that, and they're so small 
that apparently we even speculate that they're beyond the kind of usual shape or form, and even to call them a particle doesn't quite seem right. They're somehow even smaller to that than that. You might even call them like a moment or a point of reality. Now, Paul is saying, whether it be that most microscopic part of creation, the atom, the electron, the quark, thank you, James, the, the Higgs boson, or whether it's the, the meta-narrative, the uber-structures, the planets, the solar systems, the very weight of the entire universe itself, that all these things are created by Jesus. So next time you're on holiday, walking down the beach with the sun on your shoulders, and your toes are in the water, you won't be in Scotland if you do that, just think, Jesus made that. Next time you're watching your favourite film or reading a brilliant book, it's Jesus who's the creative force that underpins all of that. Next time you're enjoying a cup of tea or a pint with your friend down the pub, Jesus made all those things too. It's Jesus who's the creative force behind every novel movie, holiday resort, marathon, sports car, steak dinner, mountain, river, university, house, mansion, poodle, all things are created by him. Verse 16, please read with me. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. That means he made the angels in heaven and all the invincible principalities. He made every authority, whether it's the Ming Dynasty of China, the great Persian Empire, Emperor Nero of Rome, David Cameron's cabinet, Barack Obama, your boss at work, the head teacher at school, the Archbishop of Canterbury, All rulers, all authorities, whether they know and serve Jesus or not, are all made by him and for him. That means they belong to him and he can do with them exactly as he wants. All things were created by him and for him. When I was a a little boy, my mum used to sew name tags in the back of pretty much everything that I owned. And I've still got my old football socks. They don't get much use these days, I have to tell you. And there they are, still sewn on the top there, says Alistair Gordon. I don't think I could fit in those anymore. Alistair Gordon, it says there at the top. She used to sew them into my, my blazer as well. In fact, it said, I opened it up and it said, Alistair Gordon, this blazer belongs to him. Uh, your mum might have done that as well. Like there's a special offer on name tags or something and everything gets, gets sewn on the back with a name tag. All these things belong to me, it says. Well, when we say that Jesus is the author of all things, that all things belong to him, it's a little bit like a name tag is sewn onto the back of absolutely everything in the universe. And it all says, property of Jesus Christ. So there's one on the clouds and there's one on the oceans. It says, property of Jesus Christ. There's one on the door to this church as you come in. It says, property of Jesus Christ. 
There's one on your iPhone, actually. Uh, there's one sewn onto the back of your wallet. Property of Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's one on your loft extension. Property of Jesus Christ. There's one on your career trajectory. There's one on your hope for a promotion. Property of Jesus Christ. Everything belongs to him. All the football socks belong to Jesus. Paul says he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Well, this makes sense. If Jesus is the creator of all things, it stands to figure that he is also the sustainer of all things. So it's not like the picture of the the neglectful clockmaker who winds up creation and just lets it unwind while he disappears. No, that's not our Lord Christ. The opposite. Jesus is involved in every aspect of his creation. Keeping it, sustaining it. In him, all things hold together. It's as if to say, Jesus is like the you-who of the universe. He's the glue that binds it all together. And if it wasn't for Jesus, the universe would quite simply unravel like a loose paper coil. So let me ask you again, how big is your Jesus? Take a moment with me, if you would, just to read back over those verses in Colossians 1. It's not very often in a sermon that we stop halfway through for a moment's silence. Perhaps we could have silence a little bit more in our services. But we're going to do that, if we may. I'd like you to read through the passage again and ask yourself, how many times does Paul use the word all? All. How many times does all appear And then ask yourself, why would Paul put that word all in so much? So just a minute to do that, please. Well, I counted five. wonder if you got the same. You see, Paul is at pains to tell us how full, how all Jesus is. The person, the divinity of Jesus. Paul even says in verse 19 that God was pleased to have all his fullness to dwell in him. Isn't that amazing? The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Now, this makes absolutely no sense to our logical, rational Western mindset, our mindset, I suppose, that's really based on binary logic. We find it very difficult to grasp that Jesus can be both God and human. We perhaps can fall into the trap to think that maybe he's half God and half human, because that's a bit more logical, that he's 50% a human being and 50% a God, because that gives you 100%, and that's nice and clean, and we can finish there. But the Bible here presupposes that Jesus is actually all human. That means he's 100% a human being. Yet at the same time, it tells us he is all God. He is 100% God. That means Jesus is at least 200% of reality. So he's off the spreadsheet. He's in a whole new realm of the real 
He might even be 300%. He might even be 4,000% of reality. Jesus, by him, through him, for him, all things hold together in him. The fullness of God dwells in him. He is at least 200% more real than anything else in the creation. So let me ask you again, how big is your Jesus? You see, it might be that you limit your Jesus to just a historical figure or to a good moral teacher. Or it might be that you limit Jesus merely to your personal saviour or your friend. Now, all of those things, of course, are true and they're right. But Jesus is so much more than all those things. Paul says that Jesus is sufficient. And the trouble is that if we start to limit our understanding of Jesus, then we begin to start looking for him in other things. So it's as if there's a desire in all of us to search for something bigger than ourselves. A a search for transcendence, for meaning in life, for something that's greater than us. Something that's found in Jesus. Something inside of us that wants to connect with the higher purposes of the universe. To feel that our lives in some way is connected to a greater purpose. That's how we're designed to be. And when we limit our understanding in Jesus, we start looking for that greater purpose in other things. We look for it in our career, in relationships, in lost extensions. Not that there's anything wrong with any of these things. All things are created by him and for him. But Paul puts elsewhere in Romans chapter 1 that we have become foolish That in our hearts we've turned from worshipping God for all that he is. And we've started to worship other things that he created instead. As if these things become a substitute for the all-sufficient God. And then it's no wonder that we feel unsatisfactory. That we always want more. Paul is saying if you want meaning. If you want purpose in life. If you want ultimacy then you'll find it in Jesus Christ. If you have Jesus, you have everything. Your search is over. He is the fullness of God, supreme in all things. Well, that brings us to the end of our first point. And then secondly, reconciled through Christ. Oh, we can skip ahead quite quickly. Everyone's a little bit relieved. Reconciled through Christ. And in a little bit less detail, secondly, reconciled through Christ. Many people here in our church family are from South Africa. And you can tell it's getting into spring because the brides are out. And uh, we sensible Brits, we wait to start burning things on barbecues in the summertime. Okay, when it's warm. But if you're South African, you you start burning things round about now. And Wimbledon Common turns into like London's largest mobile buffet for the carnivorous. We're starting to smell them wafting over the hedges down where we live. And, you know, when I was a a boy, I think my foremost political memory is a, a memory connected with South Africa. In that my first political memory is that wonderful day when Nelson Mandela was released from prison. And that extraordinary walk, that long walk to freedom. And the very beginnings of the end of apartheid. And even as a boy, I remember thinking that this is something really significant. And while I couldn't understand all the political nuances, I knew 
I knew this was a big deal. Even today, while possibly we could say that apartheid still isn't at an end and is still being worked out, we can celebrate that to some extent it has finished in South Africa. But the very nature of apartheid, and of course apartheid means to be apart, you know, separated in a permanent, even a, a very hostile sense. But the very nature of apartheid tells us that something is wrong with this world. The fact that it exists tells us that something has gone wrong. We feel that these great divides between countries, between people groups, just shouldn't exist. There isn't reconciliation on this earth. Not today. But Paul tells us that reconciliation, the end of apartheid, isn't just a political ideal. It's not just a dream to aspire to, but something that is achieved in a much greater sense through Jesus. Paul isn't talking about an immediate political reconciliation between countries or people groups, but the end of an apartheid, if you will, that exists between man and God. And here now, Paul turns from talking about things of creation, and he starts talking about the stuff of redemption. The reconciliation of all things back to God. Paul says in in verse 21 that we were enemies of God. We were enemies in our minds because of our evil behaviour. That there's a chasm that now exists between ourselves and God. It's the one divide that we can't get away from. In fact, there's no bigger divide that exists in the world than that between mankind and mankind's creator. The Bible has a word for that divide, and that word is sin. Our sin, or as Paul calls it, our evil behaviour, has terrible consequences in our relationship with God. He says we are enemies of God. Enemies of God. That word comes with a heavy punch, right? And it must be taken very seriously. If you or I were to become enemies of one another, for sure there'd be consequences. So let's say, let's say I punch you in the face. Okay, now just for the sake of the illustration, don't worry. Let's say I punch you in the face. We become enemies. There's going to be consequences for that action. Probably the worst that can happen is that you turn your back on me and we become enemies. And whilst that would be really deeply tragic for our friendship, it's not life-threatening, is it? It's just a few bruises here and there, and we're not mates anymore. But if you become an enemy of God, if you turn your back on the creator of all things, the author of life itself, if you turn your back on Christ as the author of life, you're effectively choosing death. The thing is, we all desire to live forever. That, that shouldn't be some kind of unattainable dream or fantasy. It should actually be our reality. We just see that death is wrong. It was how Jesus designed us to be. It, it's how we should be and what we should aspire towards, to live together with Christ into the future. 
But you see, not only is Jesus supreme in creation, he is also supreme over death itself. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. The great news of the gospel is that Jesus has reconciled you back to God. Isn't that amazing? Through meeting death, head on, three days later, defeating death and rising from the dead, he's the only man ever in the history of the planet to have defeated death and then to carry on to life after that. So who better to help us come through death to life than Jesus? Paul says, not just that, but to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. I don't know what you saw when you looked in the mirror this morning. I don't know what you think you see. The old adage has it that women look at themselves and generally see themselves as something less than what they actually are, whereas men look at themselves and they sort of think they're more handsome than they actually are. And neither of us actually see ourselves as what we really are. I can tell you what I saw. I saw a tall, slightly thin Scotsman who's gone a bit grey round about the ears, probably from his daughter, who's lovely, by the way. But I can tell you what God saw when he looked at me in the mirror this morning. In fact, it's the same thing that he saw when he looked at you, if you know Christ, this morning. He saw someone who is without blemish. He saw someone who is holy, who is free from accusation. Essentially, when God looked at you, he saw Jesus. Now, we're not talking about outward appearances here, okay? It's not about what you physically look like, but what's going on deep down inside, deep in the core of your inner being, where no one else sees, but God only sees, and he sees that you are holy. Now, that word holy means set apart. Um, It was normally really only used for God himself in the Old Testament, and it appears in the character of God as holy, 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 three times over, holy, Lord God Almighty. From time to time, God's people were required to be holy as well because God is holy. Yet we know time and time again, they failed at that. They could never become holy under their own steam. They could never become set apart. But now... Not by the efforts of the Israelites and not by our own efforts. Because of Christ, now, now, we are holy in his sight. It's worth just pausing to dwell on that. Paul has just told us we were once enemies of God. Divided from him because of our evil behaviour. But now he said that we've been made friends of God, and more than that, that we are holy. Normally when you do something to make an enemy of someone, okay, the onus is on you to make amends. So I've punched you, 
we're enemies. It's up to me to pick up the phone and say, I'm sorry. And the, probably the best I could hope for is that we kind of become neutral again, that we stop being enemies, okay? That we become neutral and you're not too frightened, I'm not going to whack you in the face again. It's probably a bit too much to say that we become mates straight off the bat. But either way, it's up to me to pick up the phone and ask and to say sorry. Here, God is the offended party. We're the ones who are enemies of God because of our evil behaviour. But here, it's God who's the one who makes the decisive action. It's God who provides the solution to mend our broken relationship. And actually, there's nothing we can do about it. He takes us from being enemies. He takes us through neutrality. He declares us friends once more. But more than that, he even goes that extra mile and declares us holy, set apart, blemish-free. No one can accuse you. And he shouldn't be the one doing it. It should be us. We're the ones who threw that first punch. We're the ones who become enemies. But yet, there's nothing we can do ourselves to reconcile ourselves back to God. We need help. We need Christ. So this is the gospel. In fact, this is the wonder of the gospel. That once... You were enemies of God and separated from him by death because of your evil behaviour. But now, but now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So now, for those who trust in him, when God looks at you, he sees the son he loves. He sees someone who's holy, spot-free, that no one can accuse, and who's going to live forever. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the radical, controversial claim of the gospel that anyone, regardless of your creed, regardless of your crime, can be reconciled back to God for free because of what Jesus did on the cross. I wonder what you think when you read those words of Paul. I wonder, actually, if you really believe it. You may have been a Christian for quite some time. You might even be struggling with confidence in knowing that God really sees you like this. We often have our greatest doubts when we go through difficult times, when we lose a loved one, when we have some kind of crisis ourselves often specifically when we've done something that we think is so terrible and so unforgivable that God couldn't even possibly forgive me, let alone see me like this. How can God really love me now, let alone call me holy, blameless, free from accusation? But that's exactly what Christ has achieved for us. We find our answer to all these questions in verse 23. How do I know? How do I know that this applies to me? Paul says, if you continue in your faith, this is how you know, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. 
At first, that seems like a condition, doesn't it? It seems like a condition of grace if I continue in faith. But on closer inspection, what Paul has given us here is actually a really super rock-solid definition of what it means to know that you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, then you'll continue being a Christian. Continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. So the problem is today that we often want quick fix solutions, don't we? We want ready guarantees. But here in Paul's letter to the Colossians, the guarantee he gives us of being a Christian, the guarantee of our salvation is kind of the guarantee of a lifetime. The guarantee is keep going, keep going, but be established in the gospel. Don't add anything onto it. Don't take anything away from it. Don't move away from the gospel. And don't give up. If you're a Christian who keeps going in that way today, 10 years time, 20 years time, 65 years time, you are now holy in his sight, free from accusation, without blemish. This is the gospel. And Paul says he's become a servant to that gospel. He's become its slave, he says, so that he might continue to know it and make it known. So let me ask you just one more time. How big is your Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn from all creation. All things are made by him. All things are made for him. He is the cosmic glue that holds everything together in the universe and the very reason it was all created in the first place. He is the Jesus who is big enough to restore you back to God. Not even death can stop him. He is the reason for all things and the Lord of all things. So if you are a Christian today, I have two applications for you. The first one is very simple. The first application is worship Jesus. Worship Jesus. Love him. Adore him. Sing songs to him. Sing songs about him. Rearrange your diary so you can spend time with him in his word. Look at the world he created and enjoy it. As you revel in sport, give thanks to your creator that he made you fast. As you go to the cinema, give praise to God for the invention of story, of sound, of sight. My second application, if you're a Christian, is to keep going in the gospel. Keep going. Later in Colossians, Paul goes into greater detail into what that means to keep going in faith. Established in firm. Actually in chapter 2 and verse 6, which is possibly right at the very heart of the the message of Colossians. Chapter 2.6, Paul says, Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So how do we keep going in the gospel? 
How do we keep ourselves from adding or subtracting to the gospel? How do we remain in the gospel? Paul says, chapter 2, 6, we keep going in the very same way that we received that gospel. And for all of us, we receive the gospel by hearing about Jesus, by reading about Jesus in his word. Either because someone very kindly told us the words of Jesus, or because we read them firsthand in the Bible. So how do you keep going? You keep going by sticking to the words of God, keeping rooted in his word and strengthened in faith. If today you wouldn't say that you are Christian or share those deepest beliefs, you are most, most welcome here. You really are. Could I invite you to investigate the claims of Jesus? Please investigate the claims that Paul makes about Jesus. Is he really the amazing God, divine creator figure? Why not today, let it be the day that for the very first time you put your trust in that creator. It's very easy to do. All you do is say a prayer. And the prayer can be something like, Jesus, I'm sorry for living a life without you. Please now come into my life. Please now help me to live a new life with you as my Lord. It's very simple. If you'd like to pray that prayer, I would be so honoured to pray that with you after the service. As would anybody here who is a Christian. And that's pretty much everyone. But for all of us, whether you're a Christian for many years, or whether you're just starting out on your journey of faith, we are to know Jesus, the big Jesus of the universe. And like Paul, become a servant to his gospel. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the majesty and the supremacy of his name. Reveal to us more, I pray, about his character, that we might worship him for who he really is. Help us to continue in Jesus. Help us to continue in the creator and sustainer of all life, that we wouldn't move from him, but remain established in him, not moving from the hope held out in the gospel. We pray this in the name that is above all names, that will endure forever, and now by grace lives in those who follow him. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.